All right, so this is week four of our series that we're calling Bear Fruit, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, one fruit described by these nine different aspects. We should all say it together. Wait, we should, you should guys have it memorized, right? In like two weeks. So I, actually, I always flip to, I say faith, gentleness before faithfulness, so I get it wrong too. So anyway, maybe in a couple of weeks we can say it by memory. But here we go. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So today, as you can tell from the video and totally fitting for the 4th of July, today is all about peace. Happy 4th, by the way. Happy 4th. Uh, The video uh, is giving you this good biblical background, especially from the Old Testament, on what the idea of peace means. So what I want to do today is walk through a section in one of Paul's letters, the letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to wrestle with what biblical peace looks like in practice. And I really mean wrestle. We're going to wrestle with peace today. And here's how I want to walk through the passage. I want to give you four simple questions. And I've given these to you before. Those of you who are in any of my 100-day Bible reading groups, you're very familiar with them. And these would be great to write down, put in the margins of your Bible, keep on your phone. The four questions are, who is God? What has God done? Who are we? And so what? How are we to live? I think of everything that I learned in seminary, this honestly has probably been the most helpful because these are the right questions to bring to any passage in the Bible because it reminds us to start at the right place, right? What is the story telling us about God? What is it telling us about what he's done? Then we ask, okay, now, what does that mean about me and so what? So if we let these questions today guide us through this passage in Ephesians 2, we're gonna see what the New Testament has in mind when it talks about real biblical peace. And we're gonna read this longer section out of order because we're gonna use it to answer the questions uh, in the short time we have this morning. Now, if you remember from last week, if you were here, uh, Paul, as he writes about these fruit of the spirit, he's not writing this passage from a place of peace within the church at the time. He writes this in the context of real conflict and chaos inside the church itself. So there were some Jews who had become followers of Jesus and they had serious issues with the fact that these Gentiles, from their perspective, were now just jumping on the bandwagon, they were following Jesus, but they never had to go through what they went through. They didn't have to follow the law of Moses, the law that their people had been obeying for 1,500 years. So you have to keep that tension in mind as we read this. The church in Ephesus, the Ephesians, they were fighting the same battle we saw last week in the church in Galatia. And for some reason, of all the 613 laws in the Old Testament, it always seems to come down to this one issue of circumcision. (laughs) A couple more weeks of this, and we could call this the summer of circumcision. (laughs) You know at eight, they had a really uncomfortable laugh at that one too, but I don't know. That's less catchy. I think if we use that as marketing for the summer sermon series, we probably would have pretty low attendance. So... Anyway, uh, bear fruit it is. All right, so, uh, <laughs> so this is from Ephesians 2. I'm gonna start with 14 through 18 and then we'll read around it in a second. It says this, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace who has made the two groups one, that's Gentile and Jew, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, 
by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. So let's address the first two questions and let's together. Uh, Who is God and what has he done? Or specifically to this letter in much of the New Testament, who is Jesus and what has he done? Well, what did it say right at the beginning? He is our peace. He's our completion. He's our wholeness. He's the one who's taken what is broken within creation and within each of us. And he's paid the price to make us whole again. In the Old Testament you saw in the video, one of the most important things about peace was that a price had to be paid. So one of the ways the Old Testament taught the people of Israel this truth is by instituting sacrifice. Because peace is not just an empty wish. It's not a platitude in scripture. You don't just go around and say peace. If a Jew comes up to you and says shalom, they're not saying peace. They're saying, may everything be with you the way God intends. If a Jew comes up to you and says, Mashmalek, <laughs> I always mess it up, Mashlamek, what they're asking is, how's your shalom doing? <laughs> how's it going? How's your wholeness and completion with God going? It's not trite, it's not a platitude. Peace is about making things right, it's about things becoming whole and complete. And that only happens if there's activity, if there's action. And it always comes at a price. So the Old Testament paints this picture through the law of Moses by instituting this system of sacrifice. And their system includes animal sacrifice, which is gross, it's barbaric from our perspective. But for them, in their time, it drove home the point. Peace comes at a cost. It also points forward to a much greater sacrifice that would be made for peace. If our relationship with God is going to ever be made whole, there is a price that has to be paid. Now, a couple centuries before and during the time of Jesus, the Greeks and the Romans ruled the world at the time, and peace for both of them also came at a cost, but that price was always paid by the blood of their enemies. And we've talked before about the Pax Romana. It's this empty promise, the peace of Rome, a peace imposed on people by Rome. The peace of Rome came as a threat. There will be peace. There will be quiet. There will be calm. There will not be chaos. And we will use our sword to make sure that that happens. But it got even worse over time. Uh, The Romans had contests to see who could invent the most horrific way to kill somebody who ruined the peace, who resisted the imposed peace. That contest, of course, leads to the invention of the very cross on which the Prince of Peace would later die. So there's a high price to be paid for peace, no matter what culture you're in. In our culture, we know that, right? We reflect on that in many of our holidays. We reflect on it on Veterans Day, Memorial Day, of course, today on the 4th of July. But there's a huge difference between the Greek and Roman concept of imposing peace on someone else. There's a huge difference between that and what happened here a couple centuries ago, right? Fighting for peace, to attain peace for others, defending freedom for others, 
seeking independence from the people who would subjugate and oppress us. There's a very big difference between those. But there's an even bigger difference between the peace that we fight for and the peace that Jesus brings. Who is Jesus and what has he done? He himself is our peace. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. There is a cost to peace. Rome demands that you pay that price. God desires peace with you so much that in Christ, he paid that price himself. I don't know if we always understand just how radical and how beautiful that claim is. How radical and how beautiful the gospel is. The offended party, the one who was wronged, is the one who reaches down to humanity to begin the process of reconciling with his enemy. Jesus can tell us to love our enemies because he did it first. He took our hostility to the cross so that there can be a peace-filled relationship between us and God. That's who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, in light of that, we go to the third question. Who are we? So I want you to listen to what comes before and after our reading. I'm going to read verses 11 through 13 and then skip down 19 to 22. He says, remember that you formerly, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and by the way, Gentile just means anybody who's not a Jew. So you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, here we go, by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. And that's actually really important. Go back to that for a second. Uh, that act of circumcision, which the Jews held so tightly to, they found their identity in it. It's an act done by humans. It's a work of human hands. Now the Jews despised pagans for building idols because how did they build them? With human hands. Therefore, remember that you, oh no, sorry, I already read that. Go ahead, next one. Remember that at the time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. That phrase, without God, it's atheos in Greek. It's where we get the word atheist. You are pagans, without God, separated from God. The ironic thing, guess what the pagan world called Jews and Christians? They called them atheos. They called them atheists and without gods. Do you know why? Because they didn't have idols that they built with their hands. The Jews and Christians did not worship the way that the pagans worshiped their gods, so they thought that they had no God. So do you see what's happening between those two groups? The very thing that they're accusing one another of, they're actually also doing on their own. The thing for which they despise each other and separate themselves from one another, if you really think about it, they're both doing it. Paul's trying to fix that. Now in Christ, Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then he goes on to say this, consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling 
in which God lives by his spirit. Now Paul is speaking specifically to Gentiles and he's trying to help them understand this is who you were before Christ. He's also trying to help them understand this is why there's so much hostility between you and some of the Jews who now follow Jesus. But then he makes the incredibly radical claim to both of these groups that you have both now become one. That both Jew and Gentile, you're now something different. There's been a marriage. Two have become one flesh, now because of the cross of Christ. I want you to hear, there's a scholar named N.T. Wright, I want you to hear how he says it. He says, Paul shows that this coming together of Jew and Gentile as one family is achieved through the cross of Jesus the Messiah. The cross has brought the pagans close to God, the Gentiles close to God, even though they were once far away. It's torn down the barrier that used to stand between these two families. It has abolished the Jewish law, the Torah, not in the sense that God didn't give it in the first place, but in the sense that the Jewish law was being used in the first century to keep apart the Jews and the Gentiles. The hostility that existed between the groups has been destroyed. It itself has been killed on the cross. So who is Jesus and what has he done? He is our peace, the one who paid the greatest price so that we can be reconciled to God and to one another. Who are we? In our selfishness and in our rebellion, we were enemies of God. We were left on our own, living in brokenness without hope, alienated, isolated from God and from each other. But we have now been restored, made whole and complete We have found peace because we are not his enemies any longer. We are now his redeemed children. He's taken us, not only brought us into new life, but he's brought us into his own family, into his mission here on earth until the day comes when he makes all things new. That is true peace. Because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that is now who we are. No matter the differences between us. There are 8 billion people on this planet, right? How many differences are there between those people? About 8 billion, maybe 16 billion, who knows? But you know what we all have in common? The opportunity to claim what I just said. That we were once enemies of God. And we have been offered the redemption which makes all of us his children. So that brings us to the final question. So what? How are we now to live? We know all the way back at the beginning of scripture, the first division that's found is in Genesis in the garden when the man and the woman, they're kind of led to mistrust God, to wonder, does he really have our best interest in mind? You know what? Maybe we would just be better off on our own. And that act of disobedience, it led to hostility and division between the man and woman and God and even between the man and the woman. And ever since then, We have been practicing this art of division and hostility. And y'all, over the centuries, we have gotten really good at it. For Paul and for much of his letters, that hostility and division was focused on the Jew and the Gentile. That was the great division in his time. Of the eight billion divisions in our time, which ones might Paul address if he were writing to us today? What are the great divisions for us? Sadly, we could sit here all day and list them. There are so many things. 
It's Republican and Democrat, black and white, gay and straight, boomer and millennial. We're more than a century after the Civil War, but we still talk about whether we're from the North and the South. And we've even added to that. Are you East Coast or West Coast? And there's even people who talk dismissively about what comes in between. They call it flyover country because they would never dare to set foot there. Even the fact that we have the gift of being made in the image of God, male or female, has become a battle that we're fighting against each other. We have literally turned every division between us into hostility among us. And I'm telling you, it's all nonsense. Not the divisions necessarily. Not that there are Republicans and Democrats. That's fine. Not that there are black and white. That's good. Not that we choose to live in ge different geographic areas. I'm thankful for that because I don't want to be around a lot of people, right? Not because of all the different places we come from. That diversity, the differences, it's healthy. That's what makes this place that we live in so incredible, y'all. I mean, I think about this often, and I hope you hear this in the spirit, I mean it. The fact that we wrestle with racism in our country, I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that it is in any way good. But the fact that we wrestle with it is unique because most other countries don't care. <laughs> they never consider the fact that we should treat other races as equal. They don't consider that that's even an idea. That is really unique to us that we would wrestle and receive the truth that no matter where you're from, what color your skin is, what ethnicity you are, that we are children of God. And this thing called racism should not exist. The fact that we wrestle with that is good news. It's what makes us unique. It's what makes our country beautiful. But we've got to have unity. We've got to have unity in the midst of that diversity. And the fact that we use those divisions we use them as an excuse, as a way to justify being hostile towards each other. It is nonsense. And honestly, it's an offense to the cross. It's an offense to the price that Jesus paid for real peace, the price that he paid for our freedom. And look, we should expect this from the world around us. I mean, it's been happening for thousands of years. That's just the way things are. And how would a non-believing world around us really know any different? We've been practicing this since the garden and we're really good at it. But the sad truth is that same hostility exists within the church. Catholics and Protestants killed each other over 500 years ago because of their division and hostility. Today, divisions between Baptist and Pentecostal, Presbyterian, even within those divisions, are you Presbyterian USA or are you Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians? Even within our building, are you traditional or are you contemporary? <laughs> And look, those categories themselves are not the problem. It's good to have many different expressions. It's good to have many different ways to worship, as many as we can think of. Honestly, the fact that we've only come up with two is kind of a lack of creativity. <laughs> like, for real. How much different music is there around the world that we could be using to glorify and honor God? How many different cultures could we be pulling from to express in our worship here? We need to get way more creative. Those differences are not the problem. We do not have to like the same things. We can learn so much from our Catholic brothers and sisters and they can learn a lot from us and from the Baptists and Pentecostals. It's fine that they have their own systems and their own set of specific beliefs and convictions. We don't have to agree on everything. Like, can I just give you all the freedom that comes with that good news? We don't have to like the same things and we don't have to agree on everything. And it's okay. 
What matters in the church is that we agree about what happened there and what happened a couple days later and what that means for us in all humanity, right? Those divisions are okay. Sometimes they're good. They make us diverse. What's not okay is using them as an excuse or as justification to have hostility between us. The price of peace is not paid by the defeat or the destruction of those who are different from us. And when we allow ourselves to be manipulated by that lie, we stand in offense to the cross of Christ because that cross abolished all hostility between us. Not just Jew and Gentile, but the eight billion hostilities that would come later. Along with love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, peace is one aspect of the fruit of God's spirit because only God's spirit can pay the price that must be paid for this broken world, this broken world so full of division and hostility and conflict. Only what Christ did on the cross and only the power of his spirit through those who follow him today, that's the only thing that can help to make this place whole. And scriptures are telling us that we are now these gardens in which the fruit of the spirit is growing. And when that garden is made up of good soil, when it's watered and cared for by the gardener, then God's people are able to bear into the world good, right fruit. That is how a broken world who knows nothing else other than division and hostility, that's how they will come to know the truth. When a people stands up and says it doesn't have to be this way, we can disagree and still love each other. We can like different things and appreciate about that about one another. The world will come to know the truth if we bear that fruit into the world. And Jesus promises that that truth will set them free. Now the hard thing is that as disciples of Jesus, we really bear fruit when what we are modeling into the world is his love and his fight for peace. See, it's not okay to just tolerate the existence of those who are different from us. I really think the word tolerance in our culture is kind of another bad word because tolerance just says, I allow you to exist in my presence. <laughs> the Bible doesn't call us to tolerance, it calls us to love, even to love our enemies. It calls us to pay a price. It calls us to die to self, to sacrifice our judgment, our hatred, our disdain for those who were once divided from us, for those that we may have had hostility toward. And by doing that, we can be made whole and complete and our brothers and sisters around the world can be made whole and complete and we can all live as children of the living God. Amen? Today's the 4th of July, Independence Day. Um, I'm so grateful for it. I'm grateful that we don't live under a monarchy. Um, I've never understood the royals. <laughs> like, I've watched a little bit of The Crown and I see what's happening with William and Harry. I just don't get it. Um, from what I understand, King George was just like the worst. So I'm really grateful <laughs> that we have freedom, that we live in this country. I'm grateful for everything that we get to celebrate today. And I want my fellow Americans and I want people all around the world, I want them to know an even greater freedom. I want them to know a freedom that can only come from Christ, the freedom of being made whole and complete and being reunited with God. Being reunited with one another because of it, the peace that Christ has paid for, the peace that he offers to each and every one of us. Real peace 
that restores us in all of our relationships. That's what I want for us, for Kingwood, for Houston, for our country, and for our brothers and sisters all around the world. Christ is offering it, and he's chosen to offer it to the world through you. The peace of Christ be with you. Let's pray. Father, grateful, grateful for everything that we're gonna celebrate this afternoon. Grateful for those centuries ago who paid the incredible, uh, horrific price uh, to make that possible and grateful for all those who have come since who have made it possible for us to gather to worship, for us to have jobs and families and live in freedom and a kind of peace that most of the world has never known. So we are so grateful for that today. And we are so grateful to know that this broken world that we live in now full of division and hostility is not the end. This is not the best it will be. That there is wholeness and completion coming for all of creation. That no matter what divides us, that wall is knocked down because of what you did on the cross and by walking out of that tomb on Easter Sunday. So God, I pray that you continue to make us a people, give us the hope and the confidence, the freedom to be a voice of peace and wholeness in this world that's so divided. Give us the courage to resist the temptation to just jump right in and be a part of it. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.